Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers, but the flower fades. The word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary to make sure we're filled with the Spirit and ready to study the word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have today to gather together to study your word. The freedom that we have is that which has been fought for, paid for through the lives of many, through the sacrifice of many on the field of battle down through the last uh, 200 plus years in the history of this nation. Father, we continue to pray for this nation, for our president, for our military and uh, civilian leadership that they might uh, make wise decisions that they might have the correct information necessary in order to make uh, proper decisions, that you would continue to work in and through their decisions to provide security for this nation. We know that our security rests solely and exclusively in you and is not dependent upon anything else that we do. Father, we do pray that you would challenge us as believers living in this nation to be remindful, reminded of all the different freedoms that we have, all of the privileges that we have, and all the opportunities that we have as believers to communicate the gospel, to make your word known, and to be a testimony not only to those around us, but also in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray now as we study your word that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that you might make it clear to us how we can apply these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you notice in your bulletin, there are a couple of uh, inserts. These are letters from some of the missionaries that we support. There's one from Ralph LaRosa indicating some of the things that he's involved in. There's also uh, a letter from the Friends of Israel. Now, I want to uh, point out a couple of things that I noted this morning just as I looked over the letter. I want you to pay attention to. At the opening of that letter, there's a quote from a Harvard professor, Ruth R., uh, I guess it's Weiss or Weissa, uh, from an article in the Wall Street Journal where she writes, quote, The claim of universities to be fostering diversity and preventing discrimination against vulnerable minorities is oddly compromised by a surge of anti-Semitism. With the recent addition of Columbia and Yale, over 50 campuses are currently circulating faculty petitions to divest from Israel and from American firms selling arms to Israel. 
Faculty at Georgetown, Michigan, and Harvard have gone out of their way to invite speakers best known for their defamation of Israel and the Jews. The writer of the letter goes on to say that the chilling revelation of growing anti-Semitism in America is a reminder of what occurred in Germany in the 1930s. Thankfully, there were uh, the there were the few who risked their own security to defend the Jewish people. And then the letter goes on to tell some of the things that the Friends of Israel is involved in. For your information, if you have access to a computer, you ought to go to the pre-trib uh, website, and I'm going to put that. Up here, it's www.pre-trib, P-R-E-T-R-I-B, short for pre-tribulation, pre-trib.org. And that is the new website for the pre-trib rapture study group. And if you look on the uh, left-hand side, there's a column of different things on the left-hand side of that home page where there are three or four technical articles listed, and the first one has to do with an open letter that came from John Knox Seminary, the faculty at John Knox Seminary, which is associated with uh, uh, James Kennedy's church down in, I think it's Coral Gables, Florida. And this is a response written by Dr. Mike Stallard, who was a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary. And Dr. Stallard's a member of the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group, and he's a staunch defender of dispensational theology. And he responded to this open letter that John Knox Seminary is a Calvinistic, highly reformed seminary down in, down in Florida. And this open letter, they're responding to what's gone on since September 11th and uh, a lot of emphasis by uh, dispensationalists and evangelicals who are pro-Israel and supporting Israel. And in this open letter from a conservative theological seminary in this country, they're basically saying, our support for Israel has nothing to do with America, nothing to do with God's blessing for us. It's irrelevant because, of course, in Calvinistic Reformed uh, Covenant theology, there is no future for the nation Israel in God's plan and purposes. They hold to replacement theology. So if you want to get an example of some of the things that are going on today, uh, it's not just on the secular campus where there is a rise of anti-Semitism, but there is certainly a reaction in reform circles, uh, not that they are necessarily anti-Semitic in, a, in, a, in an overt way, but replacement theology, which is the theological system that undergirds Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Reform theology, Presbyterian covenant theology, a congregational, whatever it is, everything but dispensationalism is uh, basically uh, re- holds to a replacement theology. And replacement theology means that, in their view, the church has completely replaced and superseded Israel so that there are no longer any literal promises to Israel that God will fulfill in history. Israel has been completely set aside uh, in God's plan and totally replaced by by the by the church. So just to give you some information there, you ought to go to that site. Now, one of the great differences between Israel and the age of Israel and believers in the church age is our topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and that is the baptism by God the Holy Spirit, the baptism by means of the Spirit. 
And our passage is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. This is something that is unique to the church, unique to the church age. And speakers aren't working. Speakers aren't working. Okay, this is a, what am I hearing? Am I just, is that just my own reverberation? Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. And last time we went through the, some of the exegesis on 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. And I want to go back over that again just to make sure that that sinks into your thinking. Because for so long, you've probably thought of it one way. And now I'm trying to re-educate you to think about this in a more precise manner. First uh, Corinthians 12, 12 reads, For as the body, that is the body of Christ, is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, key phrase we have to understand in the grammatical context of this verse, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, when we come to this passage and you see the word baptism, don't think about water. Remember, there's eight different baptisms in the in the Bible. We've talked about them. Some of them are five of them are dry baptisms. Three of them are wet baptisms. The three uh, wet baptisms are ritual baptisms, and they refer to the baptism by John the Baptist which was uh, for the Jew, indicating repentance for the um, preparation of the kingdom of God, the presentation of the Messianic kingdom, the baptism of Jesus, which was unique because there was no sin in his life, so he did not come repenting as the Jews were coming, and then believer's baptism in the church age. These are all wet baptisms, all the other baptisms are dry baptisms, and the significance of baptism is identification. Now, when we get into the baptism passages, this passage, baptism passage in Matthew 3.11, Acts 1.5, 1 Corinthians 10.2, there are certain phrases that are used again and again. It's almost a formulaic sentence, and We have to understand this formula to properly understand what is being said here in in this particular verse. So last time we started off by looking at the doctrine of positional truth. And in positional truth, we recognize that there are eternal realities and temporal realities. And positional truth has to do with our identification with Christ, that at the instant of salvation, We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that concept of identification is baptism. That's what baptism signifies. I want to draw a distinction between the term meaning and signification. Baptism means to dip, plunge, or immerse. That's a literal definition of the term. But it signified something. It signified identification, and so at the instant of salvation, we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and this is done through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. And as part of positional truth, we have certain realities shared in common by every single believer. We hold these equally, 
It happens to every believer. That's the emphasis in this passage on the one body. When you see the emphasis on the one body, think in terms of positional realities. Some of these include the fact that we are all regenerated. You receive a holy, a human spirit at the instant of salvation. You're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we'll see its connection to baptism before we finish this morning. Uh, we are also, also receive spiritual gifts, the subject of our study here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. We're led by the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. And this is to be distinguished from the experiential reality of being filled by the Spirit. So we started off last time, rehearsed the doctrine of positional truth, and that should be one that is familiar to all of you. Our position in Christ, it's the same for every believer. But it gives us, while it gives us certain realities that are the same for every believer, the potential is not the same. There are certain potential differences, and that depends on your volition. We all have the same assets, but what each of us does with those assets is dependent on your volition. But you have the same potential as any other believer in Christ. Now, you're given different spiritual gifts at the instant of salvation, and we will get into that before we finish the passage. But right now we're just focusing on what we have in common, positional truth, and our identification with Christ. And we have to understand that from this passage. Now, as I said last time, 1 Corinthians 12:13 has two or three grammatical points in the Greek that must be understood. That first phrase, by one spirit, is the preposition in plus the dative of, of pneuma. And that can mean a couple of different things. It can have an idea of being in a location. For example, in Greek you have the phrase in Christo. It's the, almost the same. It's the same preposition, except it's the word Christ in the dative. It's in Christo, but that doesn't mean by means of Christ. It may in a couple of places, but most often it means in Christ. That's the term for positional truth, in Christ. So the dative plus the preposition in can indicate uh, location, but it also indicates instrumentality or the means by which something is accomplished. So the first point of grammar that we had to look at was the phrase by one spirit. And the second point of grammar is the verb. It is a an aorist passive indicative of the Greek verb baptizo. And baptizo literally means to dip, plunge, or immerse. The reason it is not translated that way, the reason it's always transliterated, transliteration means that instead of translating it into the English word dip, plunge, or immerse, they just took the word and anglicized it. It's because they were cowards. At the time that they were translating the English Bible, Baptism was done, was infant baptism performed in the Roman Catholic Church, and it was a sign of entrance into the church, but because of the identification of church and state, because church and state were not separate in the Middle Ages, entrance into the church was also entrance into your position as sort of as a citizen of the state. So if you're going to come in and mess around with baptism, it has political implications. And that's exactly what happened in the Reformation when you had the rise of a group called Anabaptists. Anna being the prefix again. These said you had to be baptized again because the first baptism didn't work because infant baptism isn't biblical. You ha they, they affirmed believer's baptism that a Christian had 
that baptism only had significance, the ritual only had reality in the life of the believer once he had put his faith alone in Christ alone. And, of course, as soon as they started saying that, it was a political statement, and so they were, they were uh, tried for treason as well as heresy. Heresy was considered a political act. It was treasonous, and it was a challenge to the entrance into both church and state, and so they were taken out, and they were usually executed in one form or another. So we end up with the English word baptized, which nobody understands, and it means that uh, it means to dip, plunge, or immerse, and its significance is identification. So we can translate it for by means of one spirit, we were all identified into one body. And there's that third grammatical phrase with the Greek preposition ace indicating the new state. See, baptism or identification was a uh, an, an initiation ritual or an initiation rite into something new so that that which you went into, the new state, is indicated by that preposition ace. Now, I'm going to go a little faster because otherwise we'll just rehearse everything we did last week, and we don't need to do that. Uh, if you don't understand all this, you can go back and grab the tape from last week. Matthew 3.11 is the first statement like this when John the Baptist says, As for me, I baptize, and here it's a present active indicative. Now, notice. In 1 Corinthians 12:13, we were all baptized was a passive voice verb. That means the subject receives the action of the verb. When John makes the statement in Matthew 3:11, he says, "I baptize." It's active voice, meaning the subject performs the action. I, John, perform the action of baptism by means of water. Water being the instrument or means for repentance, that new state into which the, the Jew, the repentant Jew, was being identified. And then he draws a comparison. He says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And here we have that same kind of phrase, in pneumaty, in plus the dative of pneuma, indicating means. This, the verb is an active voice verb. He will baptize you, future active indicative. The subject performs the action. The subject is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ performs the action of baptism. Grammatically speaking, that the subject is the agent that performs the action. The agent that performs the action. So Jesus performs the action of baptism by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. This same verbiage is used in Acts 1-5, for John baptized with water. Jesus is speaking in Acts 1-5. John is the subject of the verb uh, baptizo. Here it's an aorist active voice verb. John performs the action of baptism. John is the agent performing the baptism. He does it with water, indicated by N plus the dative. But you will be baptized. Notice there's a shift there from an active voice verb to a passive voice that's misidentified on the slide that should be future passive you will be baptized future passive indicative by means of the holy spirit in plus the dative now what happens in english is when you shift gears from an active voice verb to a passive voice verb is that as i said earlier we normally express that by changing the sentence around. For example, you have the sentence, John hit the ball with the bat or by means of the bat. John is the subject of an active voice verb hit. The object or accusative case 
noun would be the ball, and the dative would be expressed with or by means of the bat. So John's the subject. John performs the action. John's the subject. Verb is hit, and we have the instrument expressed with or by the bat. Now, if we change that around with a passive verb, then the sentence becomes, the ball was hit by John. So in English, we normally express the agent of the action, the one who performs the action. When you shift it to a passive voice construction, we use that preposition by. But if you've said, if if the original sentence was, John hit the ball by the bat or with the bat, then you can end up into some kind of redundancy or confusion if you use, because John, by John, also indicates means. But here, John, even though John is no longer the subject of the verb, because with a passive verb, the subject receives the action. So in the sentence, the ball was hit by John. The ball receives the action. That's the subject of the verb. But the agent is still John. He's still the one hitting the ball. And he does it with a bat. And what the problem we get into in English is if you use that word by, for example, in our sentence, we are by one spirit, we are baptized. By one spirit makes it seem as if the spirit is the agent of the verb baptize in 1 Corinthians 12, the one who performs the action. But we've seen in the parallel passages in Acts 1.5 and Matthew 3.11 that Jesus is the agent. So it's a, it's a mistranslation to say by one spirit because it indicates a, it indicates or seems to indicate that the spirit is the agent performing the action. And that is not the case. Now notice something else here. I'm looking at the New King James Version. It says by one spirit. And if you notice in the way we had, um, Acts 1.5 up here, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice how in English, in one passage it's with, another passage it's by, yet it's the same Greek in both passages. That's why people who didn't know the Greek came along and said there were two different baptisms. Two different baptisms, one's with the Spirit, one's by the Spirit. And that that led to the charismatic distortion. There are two different kinds of baptisms. One you get at salvation, one you get after salvation. The one you get after salvation is the one that is indicated by speaking in tongues. Of course, that's all wrong, and it's based on not only bad theology but bad grammar. Okay. Now, in the Greek, it's really clear, though. In the Greek, if you're going to indicate the agent of a passive verb. If you go from an active voice sentence, Jesus will baptize by the Spirit. If you shift that to a passive, you will be baptized by Jesus, by the Spirit. The way you indicate the performer or the agent of the action is you use the Greek preposition hupa or dia, not in. So it's very clear in the Greek how to distinguish between the two. So what we have is this. In the gospel passages, John is the one who performs the baptism in the sentence, I baptize with water. He uses water as the instrument or the means by which he accomplishes this initiatory rite or ritual. 
and then he uses the preposition ace plus the accusative to indicate that new state or position into which the believer is identified. That's our parallel. Then when we look at the second half of that verse, Jesus is the one who performs the action of the verb. He does it by means of the Spirit. Just as John used water, Jesus is going to use the Spirit, and no new state is mentioned in that particular verse. So we have two of the, uh, or actually we have three of the elements. You have the subject, you have the verb baptizo, and then you have the end plus the dative phrase. Then in 1 Corinthians 10.2, which we didn't put on the board this this uh, morning, but that's where it talks about the Jews were baptized into Moses by the cloud and the sea. Uh, it, the statement, the subject or the agent of the verb is not stated. The one who performs the baptism is left out, and it's assumed to be God. The in clause relates to in nephile the cloud and in thalasse the sea, and then they're baptized or identified with Moses in this new state, and that's indicated by the ace clause. So what I'm pointing out here is simply that you have almost a formulaic statement in all these passages, and you have to understand that to properly translate the verse. And if you don't have it properly translated, then you're going to end up with a bad application and bad theology. Then we come to our verse in 1 Corinthians 12:13, where you don't have a stated agent. There's no hoopa or dia there. Then you have enumity, enumity uh, by the Spirit. So that must indicate means, just as it does in every other passage. The end clause indicates the means or the instrument used to affect the identification, and then the new state is in the body. Ace plus the accusative of soma. So I hope that's clear. What we see then is a three things. You have the performer of the action, the action itself, and the new state. Now let's try to draw the parallel. In the water baptism of John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the performer or the agent of the action. John the Baptist, he uses water to identify the person with repentance. Okay? John the Baptist uses water to identify the person with repentance. The water is indicated by the in preposition plus the dative. In the parallel, Jesus Christ is going to use the Holy Spirit, indicated by the in clause, to identify the person with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are baptized into his body. Okay, so that clarifies the meaning and significance of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit provides a retroactive identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which then, according to Romans 6, 3, and following, is the basis for our victory over the Holy Spirit. It is this identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection that, as it were, is sort of the, the forerunner or the front-line troop that brings with it an, a number of accompanying features that are unique to the spiritual life of the church age. 
Now, I'm not saying that they're identical. I'm saying that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is sort of the front runner. Logically, it precedes, although they all take place at the same time, and we will uh, see one other element of that in the last phrase in the verse. Now, the result of this is given in Galatians 3:27 and 28, and that is a genuine equality in positional truth. It's the only place there is real equality in this life. There is not real equality in uh, uh, political equality. There should be uh, judicial equality in terms of all are created equal. That clause in the um, uh, declaration indicates that... that uh, all men should be treated equally in the eyes of the law, but it doesn't mean that all men are equal. We're not equal. Everybody has different abilities, different strengths, different IQs, different talents. Everybody's different. There's no such thing as equality except in Christ. In Christ, we all have the same thing. That is our position in Christ. Galatians 3.27 points this out. For all of you who were baptized, is passive indicative. Notice the subject or the agent of the verb is not there. The agent of the action isn't there. The one who performs the action isn't mentioned here. Neither is the means. You don't have Christ mentioned as the, as the agent of the verb, the one who performs the act of baptism. Neither do you have an in clause indicating the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. What you do have is the subject of the, of the passive verb, which is every believer. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, and then you have that new state, ace plus the accusative uh, case of Christ, uh, Christos. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So it's an idea of putting something on. We are now in Christ. The result, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, this does not mean that in our experience there are no longer any Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, male or female. It means that in the spiritual life, these categories no longer matter. In the Old Testament, a Greek, a Gentile, was not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. He had to stay in the outer court, the court of the the Gentiles. Only a Jew could have access to God. Uh, Same thing economically. If you were a slave, you did not have the same access to God in the temple that a free man had. Same thing in terms of your sex. A woman did not have the same access to God as a man. So there were these distinctions that affected the ritual life of the believer in the Old Testament. But these are eradicated in the New Testament so that every believer has equal access to God. Every believer has equal opportunity to live the spiritual life and advance to spiritual maturity. And every believer has the same privilege. What makes the difference is your volition and whether or not you activate those potentials and whether or not you are willing to use your volition to learn the Word, to be in Bible class, to be filled with the Spirit, to apply doctrine, and to advance and grow to spiritual maturity. 
All of this is a result of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That becomes the front runner, the first thing logically that happens. And with that comes everything else, all of the different assets that we have as believers in the, in the church age. Now, let's look at a definition. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, and I'm really trying to discipline myself to utilize this this phrase. It's so often that we use the same phrase or hear the same phrase forever and a day in the Christian life and in Christian experience, and what happens is that becomes ingrained, and it's hard to, to dump those those um, uh, phrases that are so so ingrained in us. But instead of saying the baptism by the Spirit or with the Spirit, I'm trying to say the baptism by means of the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is the work of Christ. That means he is the ultimate agent who is in charge of the operation. It's the work of Christ whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit. That's that idea of instrumentality or means. It doesn't mean he's anything less of a person or not a person, but that he is being used in in his subordinate role to Jesus Christ. He uses the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration itself, Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to... To his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Christ uses the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration to identify the believer with with his own death, burial, and resurrection so that the believer becomes a new creature in Christ. Okay, we'll just end the definition there. So that he becomes a new creature in Christ where I think the rest of that read, where all things are gone and all things are new. We become a new creature in Christ where there is now true equality in the body of Christ. Now let's go back to our passage. All of that is just review from last time to make sure we all understand what the passage is saying. This is simply looking at the grammar. You Sometimes we have to spend a lot of time doing basic exegesis to make sure we have a correct translation before we can start uh, application. So back to the verse now. Now that we understand it, for by means of one spirit, we, that is every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that includes both Paul the speaker and the carnal Corinthian church. Remember, he has said that they were carnal. They have all kinds of sins going on in the congregation. This is not a super spiritual group. This is not a group that is known for their uh, doctrinal orthodoxy or their practice. They have all kinds of problems in this church. They're divided. They're uh, identifying themselves with different teachers. They're filled with arrogance. They are distorting the word. They're putting their emphasis on uh, Greek philosophy, Greek wisdom that uh, they, they're bringing with them into, into the church, all this baggage from their pagan background. And Paul says, we, that is even you carnal Corinthians, who can't get anything right, who are messing up on everything, who are involved in all kinds of sins, we were all past tense baptized. We were all identified into one body. This tells us that this baptism is a past 
tense experience. It indicates that it happens once, and that is at the instant of salvation. So we were all baptized into one body. That is the body of Christ. And last time I pointed out that there are eight different uses of the word one between uh, verse 12 and verse 14 indicating the unity in the body. This is what we all have in common as a result of positional truth and positional identification with Christ. So we are all baptized. We all have the same baptism. We all get the same package of assets, what we call the 40 things that were given at the instant of salvation, 39 irrevocable assets and one that's revocable, and that's the filling of the Spirit. We recover it through confession of sin. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Now, he doesn't include male and female here because he's not trying to cover every detail. He's making the same point that no matter what your background, Jew, Gentile, slave or free, we're all equal at the instant of salvation. We all have equal access to God. We all have equal opportunity in the spiritual life so that we can grow and advance to spiritual maturity. And then he adds something in this last clause, one that is frequently overlooked and one that is rarely exegeted because the issue of baptism of the Holy Spirit is such a hot topic. We were all made to drink of one spirit. So there is a certain parallelism here and linkage between two independent clauses by the coordinating conjunction and. For by one spirit we were all baptized and we were all made to drink. And that is the verb potizo. In the Greek it is the first person plural aorist passive indicative, meaning simply to drink or to give a drink. So we were all made to drink of one spirit. And the picture here is that the spirit is forcibly poured into your mouth. You were made to drink. This isn't up to your volition. Once again, it is a passive voice verb. So that means the picture here is somebody opened your mouth and poured something down your throat. Okay? Now think about that imagery. This is, this, you may think that's an unpleasant image, but I'm using that verbiage because as soon as I use the word something was poured down your throat, it's going to take us right back to a series of Old Testament passages that relate to the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. This is uh, prophetic fulfillment of some things that were indicated in the Old Testament. It's not, though it's not what it is similar, and that's why we're going to get into this whole thing with the the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. It's similar to, but it is not identical with what will happen during the Millennial Kingdom. And that is an important distinction to make. So now let's look at this second verb, main verb here, the aorist passive indicative of potizo. Let's go back into the Old Testament to Isaiah 32, verse 15. Isaiah 32, verse 15. I want to make this clear. As we go through these Old Testament passages, we're not talking about fulfillment. There's no mention of the church. There's no prophecy of the church in the Old Testament. There is prophecy related to the future 
role of the Holy Spirit in Israel. And this is one of those passages, and it's tied to the fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. What I'm saying again and again and again, what we have is like that. It's not the same. It's not the fulfillment, but it is like that. Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. So this passage in Isaiah 32, the context is it's a praise passage, and it is focusing on characteristics of the millennial kingdom when Israel is fully restored to the land and fully experiencing all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and the land covenant and the Davidic covenant. Until the Spirit is poured out, again, it is, um, this verbiage is used for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit during this particular time. Now, this is the key term for understanding this phrase. The Holy Spirit is poured out, and this concept of pouring something out is a metaphor. So we have to understand what this means. I mean, how is the Holy Spirit poured out? Is he poured out you know, like a quart at a time or a cup at a time or a teaspoon at a time? How does this happen, and what does this metaphor indicate? Well, remember the principle. It's called the analogy of faith, and I don't know why they call it that. I think it's a sloppy term, but anyway, that's what it's called. And it's basically the principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's how you come to understand what a metaphor means is how is it used elsewhere in Scripture. So to understand this, we go to a passage in Proverbs 1.23. Proverbs 1.23. And here we have clarification because the proverb is put in poetry where there is a synonymous parallelism. Now, remember, in Hebrew poetry, you don't rhyme words. In English, we rhyme words in, uh, sometimes in, in uh, poetry. But in Hebrew poetry, there is a rhyming or mirroring of ideas. Sometimes it's synonymous parallelism, where one line is simply restated in the next line. Sometimes you have what's called antithetical parallelism, where the two lines are opposites. Other times you have what's called emblematic parallelism, where the second line expands on an idea in the first line. Well, in Proverbs 123, we have synonymous parallelism, and I want you to notice the parallel between the second and the third line. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will, here's our phrase, I will pour out my spirit on you. Well, what does that mean? Is this some sort of mystical uh, encounter, some sort of experiential, emotional event? No. Look at how it is stated in the parallel. I will make my words known to you. See, that phrase, I will make my words known to you, explains what it means to have the spirit poured out. It is revelatory. It is God the Holy Spirit who is the agent of revelation. And the phrase, pouring out my spirit, is a phrase that indicates that God is communicating objective information through his spirit, words to make known to us. Now, this 
this, I, I've got two ideas running in my head because this is the subject of the second hours, revelation, inspiration, and the communication of the word. We live in a day-to-day where uh, in many circles in uh, uh, semin- some seminaries, especially liberal seminaries, I'm not going to accuse any conservative seminaries of this, although they're being influenced in subtle ways, the idea that God can't clearly communicate what he wants to man, that somehow our receptors get it all screwed up and we just can't really get it. And, and there's a real problem with that. The Word of God doesn't recognize that. The Word of God recognizes that man does have a communication problem, but the Holy Spirit overcomes that, that God created us with the right kind of receivers so that we can hear and understand what he communicates. Now, we know that got distorted in the fall. We know that God, the Holy Spirit, serves to help us understand his word. But the point is, the word of God, even in the Old Testament, when they didn't have the Holy Spirit, they could understand his word. God makes his word understandable. As a creator, he created man in such a way that man would be able to understand what God says. So... Here is the indication that this phrase, pour out my spirit, is related to uh, providing revelation, communicating information to mankind. Now, remember I pointed out in in, um, Isaiah 32.15 that this is millennial in its anticipation. It is prophetic. It is tied to the messianic kingdom in Israel. Now, we have another passage that does that, and that's in... Joel 2.28, Joel 2.28, very well-known passage because this is a passage that the Apostle Peter quotes in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost after they're baptized with the Spirit. See, it's all going to tie together in just a minute. Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass... Afterward, afterward means after the events previously described in Joel 2, which is the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, the day, uh, the time of the tribulation. So this pinpoints the fulfillment of this, this uh, passage. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. So this is after the tribulation. This is at the end, of, actually at the end of the tribulation and end of the millennial kingdom. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What does that mean? Well, we just saw what it means. This talks about giving revelation, the mechanics of God revealing his word and his will to mankind. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What's that? Revelation. Prophecy was one of the means... God provided revelation in the Old Testament. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Dreams were one means that God used in the Old Testament to communicate information. You had Joseph in his dreams. You had the dreams of Daniel. And your young men shall see visions. This is not ecstatic experience. Ecstatic experience removes the intellect from the function of the operation. Ecstatic utterance, by definition, is emotive. It is, uh, it's ecstatic. It cuts out thought. It, sur- it short-circuits the intellectual process. If you go back and you read the chapters in Genesis related to Joseph's dreams, you read the chapters in Daniel related to the visions that he saw and the dreams that he had, 
he, it's very cognitive. He's having, he's engaged in rational conversation with the interpreting angel in Daniel. He says, well, what does this mean? The angel tells him what it means. It is not a circumventing of the thought process. It is simply a, as it were, God cuts off the eyes and turns on a little internal video machine where he is giving the, uh, the, the prophet a, a, an internal video of certain future events, and he understands them just as clearly with his mind and with his thought as if he were sitting in your living room and popping a DVD into the player and watching a movie. It's not ecstatic. It's not a circumvention of the thought process. That never, ever happens. And just as prophecy and, and giving of revelation through prophecy, through dreams, and through visions in the Old Testament was never ecstatic, it's not ecstatic in the millennial kingdom, it's never emotion. God never communicates truth through emotion. That is never the modus operandi. It's always through thought again and again and again in Scripture. So Joel 2.28 is a prophecy that is similar to that of, uh, of the one we saw in uh, Isaiah 32:15 related to the revelatory process that will be in operation in the millennial kingdom as a result of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where we get into something fun, and that is that this this is quoted or referred to by Peter in Acts 2. So turn with me to Acts 2. I didn't put this section on the slides because it's too many verses. Now, remember what happens in Acts 2. Now, this is foundational to understanding tongues, the tongues problem, the problem with tongues and spiritual gifts in Corinth. And remember, that's where we're headed. Towards the end of chapter 12, we're going to get into spiritual gifts and tongues again, and then that's the subject, the cessation of tongues in chapter 13, and then the whole problem with tongues and its operation in Corinth in uh, in chapter 14. So we need to start laying the foundation for dealing with this tongues problem because it's just as much a problem today as it was in the early church. I mean, more so. In the early church, it was a problem in Corinth and maybe a few uh, smaller groups. But today, it is a problem throughout the world. Over 50% of professing Christians in the world today have bought into the heresy, the pneumatological heresy of the tongues problem. And that's exactly what it is, is because the whole theology of undergirding it is a distortion of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now what happens in Acts 2 is you have the first historical occurrence of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was prophesied as future in Acts 1-5 when Jesus told them to wait in verse 4, wait here for the promise of the Father, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, you'll receive power, future tense, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the Holy Spirit comes on them in uh, chapter 2. Now, a couple of things you ought to note just by way. I, I just love to kind of tweak a few things here. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, there's there's a place down in Dallas 
called, what is it, they, they just changed the name of it, the Christian Arts Center or something like that, and they have this huge mural of, of the day of Pentecost. And it's just like every other picture you'll see of the day of Pentecost. It has the disciples standing up outside the temple, and it has 120, because there were 120 who voted erroneously for Matthias just a few verses back. But see, the key is, once again, grammar. When the day of Pentecost is fully come, they, who's the they? Well, the basic rule of grammar is that when you have a pronoun, you have to go back to the most immediate antecedent, and that's who the they is referring to. So the they is a plural noun, so you have to find the last plural noun mentioned. Remember, there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions in the original Greek text. So if you go back and find the nearest preceding plural noun, it's the last word in verse 26, the 11 apostles, not the 120. See, the 120 got together, and they had a vote, but they weren't sleeping together. There were men and women in that group of 120, and and in a Jewish society, they would never uh, inhabit the same room, number one. Number two, you're not going to get 120 people camping out for 10 days in the upper room. So they came in, they'd had their vote, and everybody went home. And the eleven are still together. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That is, the eleven. So we're only talking about something that happens initially to the eleven. Remember, it is the apostles and prophets who are the foundation of the church. This is a foundational event. It is not something for every believer at this instant. At that first instant, it only occurred with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled by means of the Holy Spirit and began to speak with uh, tongues. It's, it says other in the King James, but it's not, uh, uh, or it says unknown. It's not unknown. It's other, other languages, literally. They're speaking with languages they never learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is a miracle of speech. Sometimes people say, well, they heard in their own language. Well, they did hear in their own language. That's because it was being spoken in their own language. It's not a miracle of hearing. The gift of languages is a gift of speech. It is not a gift of hearing. And they were numerous people in Jerusalem at that time. Remember, it's Pentecost. It's one of the... uh, Feast days in the Jewish calendar when all the men were supposed to come to Jerusalem. So there are uh, maybe two or three million people, Josephus suggests, in Jerusalem on this day. And they hear this sound, they hear the tumult, people come, and they hear the gospel each in his own language. They're all amazed, and they look and they see that they're Galileans, which... Sort of like saying that somebody from, I guess, somebody up here said it's Maine. You know, every part of the country has somebody that, you know, you cross the border and your IQ drops 20 points. And so down in Texas, it's Arkansas. Down the Atlantic seaboard, it's West Virginia. Up here, I guess it's Maine. Well, in Israel, it was in Galilee. You know, I guess they were saying that if you went into Galilee, your IQ dropped 50 points. So nobody in Galilee was expected to be multilingual. They just weren't bright enough. So they're saying that uh, all aren't these all Galileans? How can they be 
uh, multilingual. How is it that we hear each in our own language and then list all the different uh, regions they came from? And even though there's about 15 different regions there, uh, there are only, to my study at this point, there may be more. I've heard there's only there's 11. I've heard there's seven or eight, uh, somewhere in between seven to 11 uh, language groups are present there. And it's not like hundreds of different languages. And they're communicating to them. Now, Peter stands up. I mean, they, they accuse him of being drunk. And then Peter stands up, and he is going to explain what's going on here. And in verse 15, he says, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drinking yet, folks. It's too early. The sun's not over the yard arm. But, he says in verse 16, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, that phrase is the subject of much debate. This is what the prophet Joel spoke. It sounds to the untrained ear that what he is saying is this is a fulfillment of Joel. The problem is if you go back and you look at the context of Joel 2, Joel mentions a number of of different things that are going to take place uh, after these things. Okay, let's. I'll turn back to Joel 2. And it says that Joel 2 says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Anybody prophesying here in Acts 2? No. Your old men will dream dreams. Well, they're no old men with the apostles. They're not dreaming dreams. They're speaking in uh, unknown languages. Your young men shall see visions. Anybody seeing a vision in Acts 2? No. Uh, so what we have mentioned in Acts 2 doesn't occur, I mean, what we have mentioned in Joel 2 doesn't occur in Acts 2. What does occur in Acts 2 is not mentioned in Joel 2. Now, that's real important to understand. And if this is a fulfillment of prophecy, then what's happening in Acts 2 must be exactly what's happening in Joel 2. But it's not. Notice uh, Joel quotes from, I mean, uh, Peter quotes from Joel 2, It shall come to pass in the last days that God said, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see visions. Your young, I mean, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my mates, men servants and on my main servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath. Has that happened? No. I will, uh, there will be blood and fire and vapor of smoke. That hasn't happened. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That didn't happen on Pentecost. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He quotes about, he quotes five different verses from Joel 2. Now this is standard, it must have been standard Jewish operating procedure for quoting scripture. Because the same thing happens in Hebrews, it happens in other places where four or five verses are quoted and the person who's doing the quoting is only making one simple point out of one simple phrase, yet he quotes the whole chapter almost. And he says, but, oh, there's only one point here I'm really emphasizing. What is happening here is that this is not a one-to-one fulfillment. There are different ways 
I've gone through this before. I don't have time in the short time we have left. I don't have time this morning to go through the uh, a complete detail of the four ways that Jewish rabbis handled Old Testament Scripture. There are four ways. The first way is a literal prophecy with a literal fulfillment. This would be like Micah 5.2, which says that out of you, uh, Bethlehem, Ephrata, uh, one will come who's going forth or from of old, from, from eternity. And that's a prophecy that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's a literal prophecy. And the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, so it's got literal fulfillment. Then you have a statement that is uh, a, a statement that is a, uh, a, a literal prophecy, such as Joel 2, but it is an application, not a fulfillment that's mentioned. And in this case, what this means is that all that is being brought out by, by the reference, I can't spell this morning, similarity, is similarity. What Peter is saying is, you know, there's this prophecy from the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit's going to come, and the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Jews is going to produce some incredible things. Everybody's going to be prophesying and seeing visions. The Holy Spirit is going to be communicating through numerous people and 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 develop tremendous uh, manifestations of his presence. This is like that. He's not saying this is that because it's not the end of the day of the Lord. He's saying this is like that. This is the same kind of thing that is going on. There's going to be revelation as a result of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So now when we go back and we look at 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 12, verse 13, and we look at the coming of the, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what do we read? We read by one spirit, by means of one spirit, we were all identified into one body, and we have all been made to drink of one spirit. That's that pouring metaphor he's picked up from the Old Testament. We've all been made to drink of one spirit. Now, that also has a revelatory sense to it, and that's exactly what we're going to see when we get down to the, to the, to the understanding of the, the, spiritual gifts, apostles, and prophets. There's revelation, new revelation that comes as a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this new revelation that comes has to do with uh, unrevealed truth that that uh, was not revealed in the Old Testament that's the mystery doctrine of the church age. And that is related to what? To the body of Christ and this whole new thing that's happening in the church age. And so we have to understand the distinctiveness and the importance of the body of Christ and our unity with Christ and how that relates to the function and operation of the church down through history. And we will begin with that next time in verse 14. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by these things, to realize once again how much you have given us, how much you've provided for us, how unique this age is, this church age where we have all 
been given the same equal opportunity through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, and you have given us new revelation, complete revelation, sufficient revelation contained in the in the canon of Scripture, the 27 books of the New Testament, that provides the basis for understanding the spiritual life, who and what we are in Christ, and what your purpose is through us in this church age. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is not a matter of works. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of religious activity. Salvation is a free gift of God on the basis of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, he paid the penalty for every sin you will ever commit in your life. As a result of that, you can, by faith in Christ, trusting exclusively in his death on the cross, you can have eternal life and an eternal relationship with God that will never be taken from you. So you can have certainty right now, right where you sit, by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for your sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.